right, well, you are listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast, and coming in are your hosts, I'm Chuck. And I'm Brendan, father of two. And I am Matthew Hodges, an activist and lawyer and sleep-deprived, shambling weirdo right now. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot to give my (laughs) cool guy my cool intro, so I'm Chuck the Soccer Freak. Kind of regrouping after Thanksgiving, so how was your guys' holiday? <laughs> I did uh, the triple grandma tour, as I as I often call it, where Ooh. we have to hit three grandmas in in one afternoon, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it can be pretty grueling hmm. at times. <laughs> Are they all in the same city? No, not even close. I mean, Are they we're, all we're in the driving. same time zone? They're all in the same time zone. State. They're all like scattered throughout. Nebraska, so you know they're all within like a an hour or so's drive, so it's not too bad. But you're spending a lot of time just bouncing around from place to place. Yeah, just enjoying the small talk of the place, and then leaving before any of the substance. And then the substance is usually talking. That's about right. Your just coming in and out back. of people, the middle of people's <laughs> angry Trump conversations. Oh. Yeah, you know, I notice all Thanksgiving, nobody wanted to talk about anything substantive. Which was actually kind of nice. That was refreshing that really the only things that were coming up were talking about the kids. You know, nobody wanted to talk politics at all. I think everyone was intentionally avoiding that topic in particular so as not to make it nasty Thanksgiving. Right. So as not to lose your Facebook friends as family. Was that that your experience as well, Chuck? I gotta say, I spent the holiday in a nursing home, so no one really talked about anything. <laughs> I know it they was... just they talk about politics nonstop in those nursing homes. I know it. No, they're but, just watching yeah. Fox News twenty four seven. No, we ate with my partner's father, and uh, you know it was great. But it was a room full of people clearing their throats and sounding like they were choking on the holiday meal. <laughs> just so. people saying what <laughs> over and over. Again. Yeah. People asking for their dentures to be brought out. But otherwise, no, it was good. You know, nobody was talking about anything political, that's for sure. We did go to a bunch of John's friends' places afterwards and uh, did get into a little bit of the political sphere in as tactful of a way as possible. You might have been having a political discussion, but everyone is sort of ideologically or politically philosophically aligned which makes for a more pleasant political discussion than people who are so different from each other in their worldviews that you end up breaking out into an argument right with john's friends it was more like sort of within the ideological sphere but on the opposite sides of the spectrum. So, I mean, there was a little bit of tension because there was a lot of things that people were trying not to say. It was really about, instead of a disdain towards Trump, it was somewhat towards Bernie bros. You know, that that term Mm -hmm. came up at one of the places. But it was really about what do we do now what are our roles as citizens? How have those changed in this set of circumstances rather than had the outcome been different? I felt like there were some good constructive talks about what are some goals that need to be, you know, accomplished in the next four years and especially in the next two years. So 
I felt like at various times my activism batteries were recharged. So Nice. I had a pretty delightful experience of being able to introduce a number of my family members to uh, some board games that I love, including Settlers of Catan, which is the quintessential person who likes board games board mm-hmm. game that people hadn't played before, so it was really fun to get people into that, and we played a couple of rounds of that, and I got my ass absolutely handed to me in one of them. Introduced my grandma to Take It to Ride, which is that great train-building board game, and she is as mean playing a board game as she is playing cards, so that was a lot of fun, too. How was Ticket to Ride? Because I know that the notorious thing about that game, and Catan, to a lesser extent, is that there's teeny tiny, there's a million teeny tiny little pieces, and you can play a game for, like, two hours and then, like, be like, I'm gonna go get another beer and knock the table and be like, this game's ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we were being pretty careful. I mean, they're all my board games, and I'm not, I'm not one of those people who says... No liquids on the table where the board game is, but definitely we were playing on nice, sturdy tables that couldn't be easily jostled, that send everybody's settlements flying or knock your trains over or, or anything like that. So, yeah, it worked out okay. Have you ever played the board game Pandemic? I have, yeah. Yeah. My brother, uh, Andrew, works in a, a board game bar in Omaha called Spielbound, so uh, he has... <laughs> tons of board games he's always playing board games always got the newest hottest stuff uh he really keeps up with the scene but yeah pandemic and then there's a pandemic legacy oh. uh which hmm. uh is where you play it multiple times in like a series and the effects of one game will resonate throughout future games um, oh fun so there's a meta game going right, on at the same that, time that goes so you can kind of only play through it once because it'll literally have you be like all right you won, but tear up this card, and you can't use it ever again, um, and wow. stuff like that. But yeah, Pandemic is a board game about, there's like a virus, and you try to fight against the spread of the virus, kind of, uh, and it's kind of a cooperative game, which I really like that as well, uh, to have a right. game where you don't have to be oppositional and end up having arguments <laughs> over the table where you're all working together against the game mechanics itself. Mm-hmm. I am so glad that you brought that up because my favorite board game tale ever has to do with everybody's most played and least favorite board game of all time, Monopoly. Which <laughs> Mono- <laughs> Monopoly <laughs> shout out right there. <laughs> that yeah, was great. That, uh, that car <laughs> agreed with me that <laughs> yeah. Monopoly is a bunch of bullshit. It's like true, uh, and 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 here's why. Monopoly was originally written by a woman who was an anarchist who wanted to make a board game that would be a moral tale about the evils of capitalism and the strengths of collectivist action. So her version of the game included a mechanic whereby everyone who was playing could cooperate in the ownership of the properties on the board. Mm -hmm. And that was how you won. What we know of now as the victory condition of Monopoly (laughs) is actually the failure condition of the way the game was originally written. When the people, when the capitalists, Mm -hmm. who literally just stole this game from her and published (laughs) it, did that, 
they stripped out the collaborative aspect of it. And so Monopoly is, in fact, as we know it now, Monopoly is a game that's written for collective failure. <laughs> and that's why it's so miserable to play. It's my favorite thing about board games ever. Right. It's so such telling. a great little piece of history. and. But I think, yeah, I think it, it's still, even though they've kind of subverted the original intent, I think it remains because you still have that experience of playing it and then being like, I this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. I sure wish it wasn't like this. What a t- what a horrible game. Mm-hmm. Even and people don't even play it the right way. Like when someone goes bankrupt, you're supposed to like hold an impromptu auction. Exactly to like auction off their their properties, and they're like, no one does that. No one actually plays Monopoly according to the written rules anyway, because it's not just when somebody goes bankrupt, but if somebody lands on a property and doesn't want to purchase it, that's supposed to go up for auction immediately. Yep. I've never played a game of Monopoly where that actually happened, except for the video when I was in game. elementary school playing, yeah, playing Monopoly on a computer. Yeah. Where the computer <laughs> keeps track of what the actual rules are. Where they force you to play the right way. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, that was a really nice experience being able to expose my family to some board games they'd never played that were that are so much better than the shared misery of playing Monopoly. So have you heard of that card game that's coming out called, like, Secret Nazi or something? Oh, Secret Hitler? Secret Hitler. Yeah, that's the Cards Against Humanity people have made that. It's it's like Werewolf, basically, but with cards. Mm-hmm. Oh, Werewolf, I need to play that. My, my brother has that game, him and his wife, so... We're going to play that over the holidays, actually, yeah, over Christmas. and Werewolf is a game that you don't even really need anything to play, where it's just like you are in a group, and one person is kind of, you draw straws or something, and one person is assigned, you know, as the werewolf, and then you basically just talk amongst yourselves and try to figure out who the liar is, and then you have, there's like rounds where the werewolf, everyone closes their eyes except the wolf, like, can turn someone on their side and stuff. Um, so it's a really simple game, but... Simple in the rule set, but extremely complicated because it all just relies on human behavior and, you know, how different people try to deceive one another, you know, or don't. That sounds very similar to another game, another group, not board game, but I, what would you call it? A party game, I suppose. Um, mafia. Right. No, it's almost exactly the same. Oh, yeah. Where you have, you know, some secret bad actors in the group and everyone is lying to each other, trying to suss out who the mafia members are. I feel like we used to play that at, like, show choir, like, unity parties or whatever, <laughs> like right. team-building parties. Right. I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a great game for that type of thing because it's all about talking and dialoguing mm-hmm. with people and trying to make deals and agreements and, you know, can I really trust this person? Um, see leaders you know, What step information up did and... they give me versus what I gave them? It really makes you think about your, your actions very very deeply and i think it also helps you learn a lot about people whereas a game like monopoly you just kind of you learn how they deal with a frustrating board game which i guess is it's not nothing <laughs> right but it's not exactly deep insight into you know how to relate with them on a personal level sure well and that's why uh and i know that it's the cliche board game for board game fans but that's what i really love about settlers of Catan. It's essentially Monopoly, 
in, in the in the sense that you're trying to grab as many resources as possible, you're settling the board, you're closing out other people's opportunities to get to a spot. But there's so much more interaction that goes into it mm-hmm. where every round includes a lot of trading and dickering and, um, you know, little temporary alliances or temporary uh, antagonisms will form during that game mm-hmm. that shift as people start to gain power on the islands. Right. And I often describe Settlers of Catan to people as it's Monopoly, except not awful. Do they have it in video game form too? I'm sure there are versions of it. I know the Ticket to Ride has a has an app. Yep, and also uh, one of my favorite games, uh, Carcassonne, right. which is a game where you lay out tiles to construct a world, and there are different ways of gaining points, you know, depending on how you build that. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, Carcassonne actually I, was one of the first digital board games that I had played. I, I've actually never played the physical version, but there's definitely cool things about the physical version, especially the multiplayer experience and the tactile experience of actually having physical pieces and clicking them into each other. But for Carcassonne specifically, it's so nice to be able to play the game and then at the end just be like, hit, done, and press B, and then it's like, brink, your, your game is scored. You don't have to just do any of this like, all right, let's sort up you know, all the fences or whatever. How many, did you get 43 right. fences? Yeah. When I first learned to play Carcassonne, I was in a group of people who all knew how to play the game. So the gameplay went very fast. And the shared joke was that we had to set aside 20 minutes to play a game. Five minutes of it was gameplay and 15 minutes of it was figuring out who won. <laughs> right, exactly. So that is one of the nice things. And Ticket to Ride is kind of similar as well is if you play the digital version, you don't have to be like, how many train cars did you have? You know, sure. count them one by one, take forever. So, uh, final thought on board games, and I'd be interested in your perspectives on this. I was talking to a friend recently about digital board gaming. One of the perks of that, I think, is that you have these people, creators out there, who want to make a board game. And... What they're doing now follows something like a food truck model. So the food truck model, right, you want to make a restaurant, but you don't want to invest $2 million in buying a place, refurbishing it, and then hoping people show up to it. Mm -hmm. Instead, you spend $40,000 on a food truck, you build your clientele, you develop your menu, and then once you get your physical location... You have a built-in client base and a developed menu, mm-hmm. and people are eager to come to that. And I think that we're seeing that a lot with gaming right now, where people will make a digital version of the game, use that to build an audience, work out the mechanics, then they release a physical copy, which appeals to people like me, who like beautiful little you know, wooden cutout pieces that are painted and sitting around a table with people to play a game. But they've already made their money back on the investment of time by doing it digitally. That kind of model, I think, benefits the games that are more simple, where... And that's why you see a lot of games like Cards Against Humanity, like Secret Hitler or Werewolf, things like that, where it's like, it's just cards. Um, Exploding Kitten, that was like the most popular Kickstarter of all time. 
and that's a game where it's just all cards and that's pretty cheap to to mass produce but i don't know i think there is kind of a renaissance of you know smaller boutique kind of board games where you can get a lot of things digitally but the physical things are the kind of more premium experiences you're paying extra to have that nice tactile you know interaction thing it benefits the game to lean into that if you if you're designing a game for physical play it benefits you to lean into that experience versus if you're trying to do it like digital and physical sometimes i think you don't get the benefits of of both mediums I think you're right about that, and that's a principle that can be extended to books. You know, I am a book collector. I like to have the physical thing in my hand. For people who want to publish, it's a different calculus that they have to do, right? You want to get your... Content. Yeah, you want to get your content into as many hands as possible. It's so much cheaper and more efficient to do that digitally if you can build your audience by doing it that way and then release a physical copy for the people who want to have the, Mm -hmm. the tangible thing that makes a lot of sense to me. It's just becoming easier to get into kind of a DIY scene because of technology. And I think that that's one of the nice things about technology. (laughs) And I think, yeah, the crazy technological advancements and things like 3d printing, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, are really just going to continue to explode the space for, you know, tiny people to say, hey, I've designed this thing, just to 3D print it at your house. And, yeah. you know, buy, buy the download file for me or whatever. And you start to look at kind of a weird sub-economy, you know, when you can buy things from people directly online and 3D print them in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, do you need to go to Walmart? <laughs> you know, I guess you still need to buy food, but it just seems like more and more you can see a future where at-home 3D printing, self-driving cars, automation. Dude. You, like, what even is the economy <laughs> at that point? I mean, it's hard for me to even fathom out, you know, 20 or 30 years or more. Dude, I'm going to 3D print some tofu. It's going to be great. This is 3D printed food. You still got to buy the There are 3D food printers at this point to make, you know, beautiful... I don't know exactly what you can 3D print. I guess Amazon drones just, like, drop the sludge powder off at your house. (laughs) Right. The soily green or whatever. Yep. Yeah. But (laughs) what's, what's, what's kind of funny to me about this discussion is this is not new information. This has been happening in a number of niches for hundreds of years. And specifically, I'm thinking of seeds, people who grow their own varietals of a tomato or something like that. And also uh, like textiles production, knitting Mm -hmm. and quilting. Right. You know, you go to a quilting store, you're not buying quilt. You buy somebody else's plan for a quilt. That's ancient at this point. It, it's not a new thing. We're just reapplying that principle to different areas, different products that people might be interested in. It's hard for me to to think about it, but you, yeah, you just have to sometimes just put it in that perspective of you know when they invented cars, you know people were like, "What about the horse industry?" <laughs> right. It's massive. You know, there's hundreds, hundreds of thousands of jobs taking care of horses, cleaning up horse poop. Right. You know, you're putting, you're destroying, you know, where will all those jobs go? 
But I don't know. I, it seems like maybe maybe that won't hold true forever, especially when you look at the automation side of it. I'd like to come back to that a little bit when it comes to creating jobs in America and some of the serious threats to particularly blue-collar jobs that are threatened by this rise of technology. Right. Well, I heard all the coal jobs were coming back, so well, that problem solved right there. Trump, our, our president-elect is going to keep the jobs, so this is, <laughs> not, this is not congruent with the information that I've been receiving, Matt. So <laughs> I look forward to coming back and hearing how you reconcile all this. <laughs> I, I will be happy to blow your mind, Chuck. Excellent. Excellent. All right, we're going to take a real quick break, and we'll be right back after this. Awesome. You're trapped inside the house right now. There is nowhere to go because it's raining like a mother everywhere you know. And all your friends just came over and now they're stuck with you. And you got no beer or weed, just a broken PS2. So you go into the closet and you're busting out a game that you're never gonna finish anyway. Monopoly! Gonna play Monopoly! Woo! Monopoly! I'm like Donald Trump buying up all your property And I'm doing it with some oddly colored undersized money You can bet that I will bankrupt you and put you all to shame Until you kick the board out hollering You know what, fuck this game I'd never go to jail and all the railroads are mine I'll kick your ass and take your every dime Monopoly Gonna rock Monopoly Kicking ass in Monopoly It was the best of times It was the worst of times it was the best of America. It was the worst of America. No, this isn't Tale of Two Cities. Actually, this is an article that was just released in the New York Times called The Two Americas of 2016. And it really kind of goes into the two different types of Americas broken down by the election, just kind of where everyone kind of stood. And I think you had a real good uh, take on this, Matt. So maybe you can uh, take it from here. I think that there's a, a really interesting place where that topic unites with what we were talking about before the break, which is this sort of democratization of industry and the disruptive effect of technology on established industries and the thing that's really been sticking in my craw lately <laughs> we're in a period right now where the technology is still being developed but once developed it will be immediately and massively scalable self-driving vehicles mm -hmm. the main job amongst blue-collar workers in the the middle states is truck driver. Transportation is a massive source of jobs for people. And as this technology develops, it's going to be honestly safer for everyone and also smarter for people who are trying to move goods around to use an artificial intelligence driven transport truck. Yeah. Instead of, instead of having that job filled by a human, um, which is going to be massively disruptive for the economies. I think it's interesting that the rhetoric that we've seen in this campaign and also from the new president-elect doesn't mm -hmm. address that. It talks a lot about 
bringing jobs back and making sure that jobs are in existence for people, but does not address the way changing technologies that will, you know, predictably lower the price of goods, decrease accidents Mm -hmm. and things like that. But the rhetoric doesn't address how do we avoid that disruption or not avoid the disruption? How do we deal with the disruption that kind of technology is going to have? The way we talk about these issues doesn't necessarily coincide with the reality. There really wasn't any talk about automation during the primaries, except for what the uh, fast food CEO said or whatever about it, you know, not being too far off. Hmm having an automated arm that can do most of the functions of fast food employees. But at the same time, I think that I've seen an article about them actually trying or testing out self-driving 18-wheelers like in Germany. I mean, they still have a person at the seat and controlling it from the tablet screen and everything like that, but it's it's already in the works. That it's more like uh, it's more like being a train conductor or something where the Exactly. the technology is doing most of the work and you have a human there to kind of monitor it. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I, I think even after the the driving part is automated it's weird to have like, oh, it's just our truck full of our supplies and no one. Please don't rob us. Uh, right. If it breaks down, it's just kind of chilling there like a pinata, you know? Right. <laughs> like... uh, and you're like, then you get it somewhere. Someone has to be there to load it. Someone has to be there to unload it. The technology is there and will be disruptive. Right. Especially once that part becomes less and less important uh, and the cars become faster and, and more efficient. You can spin that out to some technologies that we don't have now but are sort of predictable. Like you say, Brendan, that we'll have to have somebody there loading and unloading the truck. Well, that's not necessarily right. a universal truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Some robot will unload the truck. Yeah. Some, yeah, somebody develops a robot that has good enough eyes, you know, Tetris in a bunch of pallets and boxes on a truck at that point, the whole thing is pretty much automated. So you've gone from having maybe 10 dudes working a dock to one dude monitoring 10 robots. Right, to just monitoring the network and being like, how's everything doing right. today? Right, and that's nine guys out of a job right. at that point. Um, I think we're agreed on the the disruption of the technology, but Chuck, what you wanted to talk about, I think, was sort of the disconnect um, – I think both between the political rhetoric and the political reality, and also the distinction between white-collar and blue-collar America. If you went back to the article, it looked like it was white-collar America that was relatively voting for Hillary Clinton in terms of, you know, it was the cities, it was the major hubs of, you know, finance and things like that. But when you get into the rural areas, the rural America... That really kind of went to Trump, and even some suburbs, in some ways, it's just kind of like, I felt like it was a fabricated reason why they were supporting it, you know, in terms of, we're going to keep the mining jobs. Well, no, we're not going to do that. I I don't see how that's going to be possible. Just on the, the coal mining thing, that's a great example of where rhetoric diverges from reality. The reason that we don't have that many coal jobs anymore has very little to do with 
the reasons that were given for why we don't have those coal jobs anymore. The reality is just factual reality. Coal mining, for one thing, is less competitive. Coal itself is less competitive mm-hmm. against natural gas, which a, mm-hmm. a lot of places have switched over to. Bringing factories back, that doesn't make coal the economically smart energy choice. This is another disruptive technology. At this point, a coal mine is not guys going down in the elevator. It's not the October Sky, West Virginia mining town anymore. It's basically two or three guys who are running these massive mechanical operations to just completely strip the land down. We're not digging tunnels anymore. We just remove the whole hill and sort it out. And most of that work is done by machines at this point. We're just hollowing out everything and not even having the human benefit. Lose-lose all around there. That's kind of, that kind of went to the disconnect and a lot of the article, I mean, the article was really just showing kind of the geographic map, the, the, um, what Trump's America looks like spatially versus what Clinton's looks like. And Clinton's is just like a bunch of, you know, it's like someone spilled a bunch of punctuation marks all over the outline of the United States. But of course, those are like the main population centers in the United States. So, um, right. And so when, yeah, when you look at like a map of just the red states versus blue states or red counties, I think was the one right. that went around on Facebook a lot. You know, it can look like, oh my gosh, look at all this red. Almost everywhere is red. How can that much area mean, you know, a close election? Like it's Trump run in a landslide. But then you look and it's like, oh, well, those are just areas where the population density is so low. Yeah. And all the people live in these concentrated cities. So, there are really a lot of differences, I think, in that you, you're just living completely different lives. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. doing completely different types of jobs. And um, working in two different types of economies, honestly. Absolutely. You know, different industries are going to be driving that particular region. So in particular in Nebraska, if you're not working in a white collar type office job, well, you're probably either a farmer or a trucker or you're working at a correctional institute, you know, or or you're a teacher, you know. And manufacturing jobs as well, you know, the Rust Belt thing. But, you know, most people who live in city centers aren't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, working in a factory. Yep. I think the thing that people forget sometimes is that you think, well, then clearly Trump won those people because of his strong messaging to how he was going to help them. But... No, really. He Mm -hmm. didn't have any plans to help them. I guess the plan from the other side was like, well, we're going to increase the minimum wage, but that's not really a good plan for a lot of those type of jobs either. Well, it's not a good plan for anybody who doesn't currently have a job. If if you're out of work, it doesn't matter what the minimum wage is. And that's why I felt like this was the election where it started making more and more sense to me to look at, like, a guaranteed basic income for everybody. Right. but even when you go to radical leftist socialist Bernie Sanders, Ooh, yeah, I forgot. Oops. He, even he doesn't go as mm. far as saying, "Well, we should have a guaranteed minimum income," which is really is the government solution to automation, disruptive technologies in traditionally human job creating industries. Yeah. So you just yeah. say, like, look. You'll have a minimum income, you know, it's a poverty wage, but you're not going to starve to death, 
So you might not have a job, but, you know, find something to do. You can do a gig you know, economy and get by right. with the sustenance You know, and at least there's some, there's other ways where, right, where you just start saying, like, well, you just make your, you know, write that, you know, novel you always wanted to write. And then you sure. can make a little bit of scratch plus your minimum income that the government gives you will have enough to have a, a, a moderate, you know, living. And then maybe you, you continue to look for a traditional job, you know, that yeah. still exists, even though it's it's less common. And it just seems like that's where it's going. But that's not even a conversation that's happening in our politics at all. No, uh, no one's even has the audacity to even voice that as a potential solution to this issue. I mean, they don't even really talk about this issue hardly at all. Well, and I don't think Donald Trump even understands this issue, right? Or oh, is no. even aware of it. No. Um, to even have a position. But this is the type of thing that when you're the president, this is the type of thing you need to deal with. It's to say, look, this is happening to our economy very rapidly. If you win two terms, you know, this revolution in automation of, of self-driving cars could totally upend an, an entire industry. And, you know, you got Trump saying, like, well, we need less regulations. It's like, well, that's not going to help this problem at all. Oh, dude. <laughs> right. Regulations aren't what is killing the jobs. And and I think you're totally right, Brendan, that any number of places where, where we can point to previous administrations, you know, I'm a fan of President Obama, but I think that he also failed on this level to engage with the economic realities caused by this sort of disruptive technology. You know, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a plan in place. And I think that your point that Donald Trump also, he doesn't seem to have any knowledge that this is an issue at all, or a curiosity to find out if that's the case. And yet we're told that one of the reasons he won the white house is because he had the better message to working class Americans right. where, I mean, his message just seems to be the problem with jobs is all the illegals. And if so, we, if we just get rid of them, mm -hmm. that'll really solve the jobs crisis, which really isn't even a crisis because we're at record levels of unemployment. Right. Um, sure. But somehow it's just a crisis because Donald Trump says it is. You know, not even realizing, like, all of those jobs that illegal immigrants do aren't jobs that, that people around America are lined up begging for. You right. know, they're jobs that day farm laborers and, and, you know, day laboring construction workers and things like that where... The service industry, sure. You know, you don't have a lot of people just lining up saying, like, I just wish I could just get one of those day farm laboring jobs but i just can't crack it into that industry so i, I don't really know that that's going to solve any I've kind been of thinking about interning right. you know <laughs> right when, where you look at some of the problems are like well we need a rising tax base to supplement you know all these medicare and medicaid payments that republicans seem so concerned about spending all the money we sure need people in here paying taxes for that right and yet the solution donald trump proposes is to just deport all them instead of converting them into taxpayers. Right. <laughs> Get rid of your client base, you know. <laughs> That's Donald Trump key to business success. First, take your client base, take a big dump on all of them, get rid of them, and then profit. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Well, and Donald Trump knows this too. I mean, he's used he's used illegal immigrant labor on his projects. You know, he knows how this works well and also uh, i think it bears pointing out that he also builds lots of properties in countries where the uh 
the basic standard of living and the expected wage for a day's work is tremendously lower mm. than what we have in America. He benefits, he benefits, and he knows that he benefits from sub subsistence wage labor mm-hmm. all over the world. Just like not paying taxes, I'm sure he would say that makes him smart benefiting on someone. Right, he's like, I'm only exploit. Hey, it's not, I didn't invent the system. I'm just exploiting it to its fullest yeah. potential. I think you both are right, and that speaks to this distinction that we've been making between the political rhetoric and the political reality. Mm-hmm. He's he does he talks out of both sides of his mouth, and I know that that's not a groundbreaking observation. But I think that that is very relevant to this discussion that we're having right now. The reason why Democrats fail so much at this discussion in a lot of ways is because they are very afraid of confronting the name-calling of being labeled a socialist. It's one of those things that's so toxic to them to have anything that almost makes them sound like that, well, with the exception of Bernie. He wasn't, like, flying that socialist well, flag while exactly. he was running, right? He, he wasn't. was shying away from it. But, but the- Yeah, Bernie Sanders' political positions are not... He, he calls himself a socialist, but really what he is is some kind of a progressive liberal Democrat mm-hmm. with some social democratic positions. Bernie Bernie wasn't out there saying that we need to end capitalism. Right. That's that's what socialism is. But what they need to say, what what Democrats need to say and they won't do it because they're corporatist as well is the fact that what we have is not pure capitalism anyways. I mean, when you can basically lobby your way into preventing competition, that's not capitalism. That's not the free market, at least, you know. Right. I've well, seen- and they, yeah, I think the often the fallback is like, oh, it's the free market. Let the free market decide. But it's like you're not starting from square one. You're right. starting from the existing system. So yeah. a lot of times when you say let the free market decide, you say let everyone who's already rich and powerful just continue to be rich and powerful forever because you have no chance of, you know, of getting to their level once we yep. let the free mm-hmm. market start to really you know, take the reins off of it with all these regulations that are restricting everything and let it really free. Mm-hmm. But you're not, yeah, you're not starting over. No, no. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, I think. They, they just need to get over it. I mean, just like the fact that calling Donald Trump a racist wasn't really going to change who was going to vote for him or not vote for him. They shouldn't be afraid of being called a socialist or being proposing any kind of legislation that would seem socialist right. because... All those people in that wide swath of Trump's America, they would benefit from it. And as much as it pains them, they will take that check. I mean, last week, the uh, that judge in Texas had put the stopper on those uh, Fair Labor Standards Act changes. That was going to be a bunch of middle-class Americans that benefited from that. From getting the overtime pay if they made less exactly. than $45,000 a year. Yep. Uh, but yeah, then- yeah and, seeing, and seeing my senator, Ted Cruz, trumpet that on Twitter as a major victory somehow for America when you have, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it's something like 200,000 Texans who live within the wage range that was benefited by that policy and most of them are his voters Mm -hmm. we have a major disconnect between again political reality and political rhetoric right yeah 
And I think one of the biggest problems is that people can't even agree now on what constitutes real news. Um, oh, yeah. You have this whole like fake news crisis, basically, where Facebook and... Oh, man, are we going to talk about Pizzagate now? Twitter. I mean, yeah, we can. I'm smelling I mean, something cooking in the oven right now. There's just... <laughs> yeah, and it smells like either either just a regular pizza or possibly a satanically ritualized scandal. I didn't mean to interrupt Brendan. It sounded like you were taking that to a place, but I think that, you know, we need to circle back around to that topic because that's just one of the weirdest examples of what you're describing. Right. So, I mean, but yeah, you have all this fake news floating around where you can't even tell what's real. They had this story where CNN accidentally showed porn that was revealed to just be totally fake, but, like, everybody picked it up and carried it. Oh, sure. I got oh, wow. that both by text message and on Facebook, that that happened, but it did not happen. 80% of kids in eighth grade or whatever don't even, can't even tell the difference between real news or fake news, so mm -hmm. it's starting to become a dangerous thing. To kind of keep talking about this power of disruptive technology, that Silicon Valley had a major wake-up call that, holy cow... We are semi-responsible for this outcome because we didn't take the steps. We, we believed that people would be able to sort that information out, but it turns out that, I think you're right, Chuck, it's eighth graders who don't know fact from fiction necessarily and aren't doing the work to suss that out that are promoting these stories. But, but this story, Pizzagate is... Tangentially, well, it's related to WikiLeaks in the sense that this guy that owns a pizzeria, his name popped up in one of the emails that was uncovered from the Podesta leaks, and people started to try to theorize or speculate as to what his relation was uh, to Podesta and to Hillary Clinton, and I guess some fake news outlet was circulating that they were that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were running a child exploitation and trafficking ring through this guy's pizzeria. So, well, based on the evidence, is basically like they would say, like, we need to order a pizza from this place, right. and then they'd be like, that's code for smuggle a child. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they're like, wait, what? And it's like, you know, you could tell, you could tell by the way they said. It. Right. It's the way that it was said. You know, look at those italics. You know? <laughs> well, and, and where, I, where I got clued into this was something having to do with Marina Abramovich, who is, she is a, a performance artist, arguably oh, yeah. the most successful performance artist of all time. Oh, yeah. John mm. Podesta's brother got invited to a dinner that she was hosting, and he extended the invite to John Podesta himself. Um, which, by the way, like, if we can talk truth, still doesn't implicate Hillary Clinton in any of this. She was completely uninvolved. Right. She's like, it's like her second cousin, twice removed, yeah. went to a pizza yeah, place that maybe, and there was a weird dude there. We're, we're just asking yeah. questions. My, yeah. My best friend's sister's brother's boyfriend heard from this girl who's going with the guy who knows this kid who saw Ferris pass out of 31 Flavors last night. Who is six degrees separated from Kevin Bacon, so... 
Yeah. It all comes right. back to bacon. He's the ringleader. Oh, oh I should have known. I should have known. That's because bacon goes on pizza. It all makes sense, you guys. Right. You, you just, yeah, dude, you just cracked this case wide open. This thing, though, gets run through the ringer and amplified through, you know, various subreddits and through 4chan. And then it's and like Twitter. Yeah. And so then the next thing you know, or next thing this guy knows, he's getting death threats on Instagram and all of his employees are getting threatened and things like that. And it's just sheer unadulterated terrorism based on complete bullshit. 100% bullshit. Right. And, mm-hmm. and this is the new America we live in. This is the new information age on one hand. So pretty right. terrified. <laughs> Where there's so much information, you can't you can't tell the real information from the fake information unless you really spend time on it. And people don't care to spend time on it. They just read a headline. They just read a Twitter and say, like, I can't believe that Trump just said millions of illegals voted for him. Yep. That's just outrageous. I, I can't believe that's that's real. But Trump said it, so it must be real. Right. The president right. doesn't lie, except for when it's Obama. We are living in a post-fact society. And the reason I know that is because I read it on my chosen media outlet. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, what it almost feels like for a split second when I read the, this Pizzagate article, it made me start to think, well, was all of this manipulated? I mean, this had an effect on people that actually went into the voting booth. Did we just get rickrolled? Like this presidential campaign, a giant rickroll And campaign. don't forget that the entire time... Russian hackers were working with the Russian government to do all this, right? This was the intended outcome, and Trump encouraged them to do it. I think that's a really important point, Brendan, that there there were state actors involved in that sort of propagandizing. Mm-hmm. But we also know that there were just some real-life trolls trying to make clickbait money coming out of Macedonia, small group of dudes in Macedonia who were trying to get ad revenue and that kind of story generates the clicks that makes them money. Do you know what is a solution to this problem? What? Guaranteed minimum income because then you don't have to make fake news for click money. (laughs) (laughs) Do something constructive with your life. But think of all those jobs you're killing by that. Think of all, all, all those, those fake news right? jobs. All those, all those, those fact-checking fake... jobs. All the you fact-checkers know? will be out of business without all this fake news going around. Are you and then tried... the fake fact-checkers are going to be out of business. It's a whole mess. Are you trying to silence the fake truth? How I am you? trying to silence the Brendan's fake truth. trying to put Snopes out of business and those are, you know, those are some real Americans who just were using this democratized technology in order to disrupt the propaganda machine. But yeah, Snopes goes out of business at that I point. Think, and this, I think this will be the last thing on this, but I have to throw this in here because it's too perfect. One of the craziest stories about this whole fake news thing is that Palmer Lucky, the founder of the Oculus Rift, the virtual reality headset that was purchased by Facebook, paid tens of thousands of dollars to fund a Reddit troll meme-creating army to create anti-Hillary memes to just flood Twitter flood reddit flood the internet with them so that people would just be inundated by these pepe the frog you know memes basically (laughs) yeah we're totally in a society where a in-depth article by the new york times you know funded by subscriptions is equivalent to just some random rich guy who decides to troll and pay kids to draw ugly cartoons in ms paint 
those are equivalent, right? I mean, they're both, you're just both seeing them on your phone. They're both taking up some of your time, probably more time on the memes because sometimes they're funny and those New York Times articles are so boring right. and depressing right. with all those depressing facts about how horrible <laughs> things are. Yeah. No, and that's right. Yeah. And I think that speaks to that point about, I, I think there is a role for social media administrators to we're only going to let true things circulate and the false things don't have a platform here. But that's where Facebook got into trouble because they were basically like filtering their news and then all the conservatives were like, you're not letting Breitbart stories be on there. And they're like, well, those are kind of messed up. And they're like, you're censorship. This is the real evil. This is the real racism is you not letting Breitbart flood Facebook. And right. Facebook basically said, like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. We'll not do that anymore. Right, right. <laughs> so they totally won that one through outrageous demands. Now we, now you're stuck with what we've got, so... Well, there's no. a chance that they could come back. I think they, now that they realize this is such a problem, they, they have to figure out a way to start to start doing something, but mm-hmm. in, in a way that can, I guess, be palatable to the most outrageous people who just love fake news because it helps Donald Trump. Uh, Those are the two sides now, apparently. The thing is, though, I don't know that it needs to be palatable to those people. Um, Twitter did do a big purge of a bunch of just sort of harassy, trolly, alt-right accounts. Rest in peace, Richard B. Spencer. Right. right. If your account is is there to harass people, it's not constructive to the to the platform at all. But I think what really would be better is if they could give just better tools to say like, "Hey, don't let this person harass me anymore." And they mm-hmm. seem reluctant to even do that. Well, that's a good point as far as Twitter goes. I think though the risk is the echo chamber. Yeah, yeah. If you give people the tools to block out anybody they disagree with, then right. that just exacerbates this problem that we're talking about. What we're kind of describing is something like, you know, shared time, the fairness doctrine. It's like bringing the fairness doctrine to social media. That almost makes sense in a way. I mean, I think that is one potential solution to this is to have, in some ways, Facebook is able to cop out and say, like, well, we're not a media company. We don't have to adhere by the fairness doctrine. But... You know, who gets to make that determination of if they're a media company or not? I'm, I'm not even talking about necessarily uh, legislating it. I think that there's a moral responsibility that you're a massive platform, obviously disruptive. You know, again, disruptive technology, disruptive to the public discourse. And disruption doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing. Right. Right now, it appears to be working against our interests. Yeah. What if Twitter bans Donald Trump? It's funny that you had mentioned that it may not necessarily be a bad thing in terms of disruptive technologies. And I remember in one of my entrepreneurship classes that we had talked about how there's kind of a theory of or a phenomenon of creative destruction. And so when you have disruptive industries that come in and may wipe out something and like, let's say, for example... Walmart comes into a small town, wipes out the mom-and-pop electronics store there. Mm-hmm. But then a bunch of other maybe boutique industries pop up where you 
get an ice cream parlor, maybe a pet grooming shop comes in, something or whatever. that you can't get at Walmart or you can't get at the same level of quality. Exactly. And so when you have a disruptive technology like Facebook that's becoming disruptive to media companies and everything, that may not necessarily be terrible in terms of corporate media, may you know, start losing some of its bottom line, which I'm totally fine for. But then on the other hand, there needs to be that creative destruction or that those new emerging technologies that come up and say, okay, this is going to put you in check or this is going to complement this destruction or innovation. So I feel like maybe there's opportunities for things to come in and help reduce the harm of this destruction. Well, I, I think you're totally right about that, Chuck. And to take the the longer view and try to, you know, tie some of these threads that we've had in this discussion together, we have these disruptive technologies trying to figure out how best to use them to create the sort of environment to perpetuate that creative destruction. I think that's going to be kind of the key to looking at what we can do to solve these negative externalities that are arising because of this. So, But it has to be part of the discussion, and yes, part of that effort is also using these disruptive technologies to make sure that that's part of the discussion. Oh, yeah. And, you know, people are going to be like, well, you're just big, fat hypocrites for it. <laughs> it was like when they were like, Look at Occupy Wall Street broadcasting their message on their iPhones. You know, they're against all of this. Uh, they're against this economy, but they're definitely participate. It's like, okay, you could be aware of the harm that whatever your item is, but still, you're still working from within. We can use these media forms to get that message out, and, and maybe we just have to be savvy about doing it. So, I don't know. But... Well, yeah, man, I think that was a good discussion, but it's time to take it out on a high note. Let's take it out on a high note, and I'm taking it out on the highest of notes. You know, when people say there's no such thing as a free meal in this uh, Trump presidency, there is such a thing. I had a guy buy my Jimmy John's today for free, and it was a moment that almost turned into me griping about privilege to begin with, you know, a guy cut me off, uh, going to the drive through line. A uh, white guy, I assume? White guy in a Lexus, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, we were kind of coming around a corner. We couldn't see each other, and I just stopped in that moment because it's one of those things where, like, when you're going in a hallway and you move and the other guy moves and he goes the same way you go, I just know it's going to happen that way with a car, and I don't have enough money in the holidays <laughs> to handle that that toll on my insurance. So I stop. I'm like, please go. Just go. Motioning with my hands. And he kept looking back at me and I, in the rearview mirror, and I just started thinking, I'm wondering if he's looking to see if I'm angry or if I'm reacting to the situation. I couldn't get a read on it, so... I didn't want anything weird to go down, so I just kind of smiled and pretended like I was looking for my debit card. The guy bought my meal for me. So I pull up to the uh, to the window, and the guy says, Yeah, the gentleman ahead of you paid for your meal and wanted to apologize for cutting you off back there. I was like, oh, Wow, 
okay. I was stunned. I was I was like, let me pay it forward to the person behind me. And he's like, well, that dude ordered four meals, and it's like $25. Yeah. He's like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's just nice they go for he's it. He's picking so. it up for his entire office. <laughs> yeah, so so shout out to the guy driving the Lexus, you know. Um, that really made my day today. And I really was not mad that... Uh, Do you think he I'm, could tell, or did, was he just looking back there being like, oh, Chuck's black rage you know, is just I, raging right that's now. That's where my oh, mind fear for went, my life. and I guess that means I'm racist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know? No, 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 no. I don't think it does, Chuck. I think that, you know, I think that that's an important point uh, that goes to a lot of what we've been talking about tonight, that the, these these divisions that are created by our different perceptions of our own culture create that kind of narrative whether true or not you know and to to have that conversation is not to say that maybe the guy was really worried that the black guy behind him was gonna go all crazy and but the you know the the moral of that story ends up being he felt bad for cutting you off regardless of that narrative and exactly. fight your meal yeah it could have gone so many other ways if you believe well, if you just pay attention to corporate media, I mean, there was just a story the other day about, you know, someone getting shot in an altercation that started outside of oh, the store. Black Friday riots, man. Oh, dude, you know. Yeah, every year. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things, and you you look at it, and there's the potential for it to go one way, but, you know, it's really nice when it doesn't go that way, and people are pretty cool here, and... You know, say what you will. Nebraska's an all right place. So. I, I'll I'll drink to that guy in the Lexus. That was a absolutely. That was a mitzvah. You know, I know he's not necessarily listening. No, I don't know that he might be listening. <laughs> you never know. You didn't flip him your card. That's right. <laughs> be like liquid flannel. Every time someone cuts you off, just like business card right out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I should get some liquid flannel business cards so I can just start advertising the show every time a situation like that. Well, that's how we advertise the show. I'd put a a magnet on my car if you guys wanted to make one of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There we go. We'll keep getting those merchandise ideas. You can download the show on iTunes. You can rate us on iTunes. That would be cool. Absolutely. You can follow the show on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. Uh, And I'm at Brendan Williams on Twitter with one L. And I am Chuck Williams at Shaggy2Trope on Twitter. And I am Matthew Hodges at MattTheGweight with a W. And you have been listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast. So uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, join us again next week. And uh, we'll see you next time.